Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 20. This is Joey Brandon. I'm your host for another edition of the Axiom Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about making a decision. And when I talk about a decision, the A stands for any decision. And this comes out of, it, there may be a little bit of a rant involved this week uh, because I've been really busy for the last month. You can tell because we haven't had a lot of podcasts up. I think this may be the first one in about three or four weeks. And in all of the busyness, I've been spending a lot of time with clients, and we've had quite a few new clients come on board in the last month. And as we get to know them and get to know their styles and get to know their personalities and understand more about their businesses and get into the operations of those companies, we're, we're always, especially in the beginning, there's a lot of decisions to be made. There's small decisions, and there's some really, really big decisions. When you start doing strategic planning for the first time, most of the companies we work with are not accustomed to a discipline of strategic planning and execution. So we're putting we're not just putting big decisions on the table, we're building a process for making big decisions on a regular basis. And and I it it just seems really really apparent these last 3 weeks, 4 weeks, maybe 5 even 6 weeks. It it seems apparent to me how much companies struggle with making big decisions. Um, and and making small decisions. And so I wanted to spend time in this podcast on on the idea of make a decision, any decision, just, just make decisions. Because I think that there's some things strategic planning in particular brings to uh, business and brings to operations that allows you to make decisions with a lot less risk and a lot more certainty and, and a lot less anxiety than you're you're typically used to in a small business environment. And I think that that anxiety is what leads people not to make decisions until they're forced to. So let's go ahead and jump in and get started. I, and there's not a, a real big set outline for this. It's more a riff of, of recent experiences that I've had with clients. And so we'll see where it takes us. But there are a few things that I want to share, maybe some stories that I'll put out there that illustrate how this decision-making before and after uh, culture changes when companies adopt strategic planning models and start to execute on them. So I would say in my experience, most businesses make small decisions every single day. I mean, they, they, you have to. You, to say that a business isn't making a decision uh, is crazy. There's There's all kinds of decisions that get made every day. But the impetus for most of those decisions is is usually in response to some issue or problem that's come up. So when you think about, oh, we're going to make this business process better and we're going to go in and analyze it and break it down and we're going to make some decisions to change it, that's a pretty rare occurrence inside most businesses. And, and it should, I don't want to say it should be, but it doesn't surprise me that it's a rare occurrence because when you're talking about changing processes, you don't want to change processes every day. You want to get the process out that you need to be uh, effective in running the business at and then run it for a while and see whether you can make it more efficient or whether you need to change it or re-engineer it or whatnot, but you're not going to rebuild the wheel every single day. So it doesn't surprise me that that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often. But one of the things that I think 
definitely uh, does happen every day is businesses constantly make decisions on the basis of crisis that they're facing or issues that they're forced to confront. And that, again, that's normal. That's what you'd expect. There's nothing wrong with that. But when the, when the companies that I'm talking to, when, when the only decisions that they're really making to change things or to, to do something different are because of a crisis, then it tells me something about that organization. The first thing that it tells me is that they don't have any venue for making those kinds of decisions outside of a crisis. So what's happening, when I say venue, it, it could be synonymous with the word opportunity. So what's happening is a customer gets upset about a particular situation, and that gives the business the opportunity, if you want to euphemistically phrase it, the opportunity to make a decision to impact that. Uh, or to change something that they're doing. But the, the opportunity wasn't created by the business. The opportunity was created by the customer. And the thing about those opportunities is that they're crisis opportunities. They're opportunities created in crisis. So they demand not just quick decisions, but a lot of times they demand decisions that aren't going to have the benefit of all the data. These are the kind of decisions that are made anecdotally. And if there's one hallmark of an organization that is accustomed to making just these kinds of decisions, it's that even when they talk about big strategic decisions, they don't bring data to the table. They bring anecdotes to the table because that's what they're used to. They're used to every day some anecdote shows up in real life in the form of a situation that they have to deal with inside their company, and they don't have time to go get the data. They don't have time to sit down and do the research. They don't have time to pull apart the details. They just have to make a decision because the customer's right there in front of them, and they're demanding a solution or a resolution, or the order is sitting there on the on the, the shipping dock and they have to decide what they're going to do to be able to get it out the door if it didn't match specs and how they're going to troubleshoot that. And, you know, they just have, they have to do these things on the fly. But the problem is when they get into a situation and they're addressing bigger decisions, things that are going to affect the company on a strategic level or things tactically that are going to affect the company on a long-term basis, when you're talking about business processes, that's what we're talking about, talking about tactics, business tactics that are going to be in place for a while, and they're going to have an enduring effect on the way the company does business. And these companies that are not good at creating their own venues, creating their own opportunities to make decisions, come to the table with nothing but a whole list of anecdotes about why something can or can't be done. And as soon as I hear... As soon as I, I, I find myself two to three hours into a meeting, and it usually doesn't take nearly that long, but you can be you can be sitting there two hours into a meeting, and you realize we're facing major issues that are going to affect the company going forward, and nobody is actually looking to put their hands on the data. Nobody's being tasked with going back into the systems or going back into the records and pulling out the operational data, the experiential data that's going to help us understand how big the problem is, whether it's a problem that's existed for a long time or it's relatively recent, where the, the problems are cropping up, how they're being resolved. Nobody wants to even go look at that stuff. And it's not because... It's not because they can't, it's because they just aren't in the habit of doing it. And you contrast that with a company that's been doing strategic planning and they, they've built this discipline 
and I talk in other another podcast, and I reference um, Vern Harnish's book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, a lot, where they they've mastered this rhythm of the organization, where they've got the daily huddles, and they've got the weekly ops meetings, and they've got the monthly strategic plan updates, and they got the quarterly campaign planning, and they've got the annual strategic planning meetings. When they've got that stuff down, they show up for the strategic planning meetings with reams of data, or they come out of part one of those meetings with lots of to-dos about going and pulling the data to answer the questions that have been raised in the meeting. And that's their default mode. They know that when they're going to make a big decision, they need to have the data at their fingertips so that it's an informed decision. And it's not uncommon when, when companies have not had that kind of history and they're new to the strategic planning process that they just show up and the only thing that they have are the stories in their heads about what has and hasn't worked and why this will or, will or won't work. And, uh, you know, I've, one of the things that we deal with almost every single client on is pricing, uh, pricing their goods or services. And, this is one of the areas where this is a very good example of how data should show up in the mix, but often doesn't when a company isn't isn't uh, disciplined in in the strategic planning process. So, and this happened, like I said, this happens. I would say nine times out of ten, and it's definitely happened uh, in you know nine of the last ten new clients that we've taken on. Uh, we get into strategic planning, and pricing is was one of those things that I always want to look at. And so when it comes to major accounts, uh, sometimes you can do it across the board depending on how many accounts a, a customer has. But when it comes to major accounts, you're typically only going to be looking at a few dozen major accounts. And if you look at when was the last time prices were changed on these accounts, hopefully they have that data. Uh, some Some do, some don't, but you can get that relatively easily. And so we'll have them put together a list of their major clients, what the existing contract prices are, or discount rates or terms, or you know how, what it, it depends on the industry. Some some companies are going to have rate sheets that are across the board for every customer, and, but they're going to have discount terms that vary from customer to customer, that kind of stuff. Um, some specialty services, professional services contracts, they're going to have specific rates that are specific to almost every single customer. So we look at those and you go, when was the last time that rates were changed with this customer? And you know, it's it's not uncommon for those to be more than a year. Um, sometimes if they're less than a year, we'll ask when were those changed before that? And they'll go, oh, you know, it had been a couple of years. That's when we decided to sit down and change them. But in cases where it's been one year, two years, three years since there's been a rate change with a customer, there's generally a lot of hesitancy uh, to move those rates because, and the rates haven't moved because of the hesitancy. There's a, there's a perceived price sensitivity where the the business believes that the customer is so price sensitive that any change in prices is going to result in the loss of the customer. And that should only be true if the company has carved out its position in the marketplace to be one of uh, of being that bottom line pricing position. So if that's your strategic position in the marketplace, then that's understandable. But very, very few, and actually none of our clients, I can say this with confidence, none of the clients that we have now are in that spot where they they have picked the position in the market where they're going to be the lowest cost producer. So 
the idea that they can't move prices at all or they'll lose customers is inconsistent with where they want to put themselves in the marketplace. So th- there's a, there are two points of, uh, of data there, if you will. And I, that's not, I guess there's two, there's two competing positions there. I won't say data because I want to use that for something else. But there's two positions there, and they can't both be true. So it can't be true that we are not the lowest cost producer in the marketplace and if we change prices at all, we're going to lose customers. That can't be true because if you're the lowest cost producer, a movement in prices is what will cause you to lose customers. But if you're not the lowest cost producer in the market, you bring other value to the table that the customer is willing to pay for. And if the customer hasn't paid more for that value in the last two years and because you haven't changed their rates, then either... You're leaving money on the table and you need to adjust prices or you're not generating the value that you say you're going to generate as part of your market position. So they can't both be true. But in order to tell whether they're true, so I can say that they both can't be true, but then I need to prove that they're both not true. And the business needs, before it makes this this decision to raise prices, it needs some hard data to in some cases, give it the courage to raise prices. In other cases, to tell it how much it needs to raise prices. And the kind of data that we're looking for is the last time we raised prices, how many customers did we lose? It should be very simple data to get. But very few companies take the time to gather it before they make those kinds of decisions. Now, simple doesn't mean easy. It could be time-consuming. It could be simple, but it could be time-consuming or laborious. Or it, could be, um, it could be simple, but it's going to uh, require pushing the meeting back three or four days and assigning somebody to go get that information. But it is simple information to get. The reason we don't get it is just because we're lazy. So you can get that kind of data and bring it to the table and make an informed decision about price, or you can just go... Uh, we can't move prices at all because our customers are going to leave us. And it's pretty easy to find negative anecdotal information because that's what we remember. We all remember the last time a customer said, your prices are too high. There's no way I'm putting up with an increase. We're going to go over to competitor ABC across the street. And we all remember that. It's burned into our brain as this painful experience. And what we take away from that is a broad generalization that we can never change prices for any of our customers because we had this one negative anecdotal experience. And this is what I hear over and over again. But when I ask for the data, they don't have it. Now, they can get it. They just choose not to. And I don't know if I would I would call it laziness as much as it is a failure to create a culture of accountability in the organization. And that this this idea of a culture of accountability shows up in a lot of places. So a culture of accountability shows up with managers who get frustrated that their employees uh, and team members are not are not pulling their weight. They're not uh, they're not doing things the way they've been set out to be done. Uh, so for instance, we've got a client who uh, has has really started to put some processes in place around the sales force over the last year. And one of those processes is a weekly sit down with the owner of the business to go over all the leads that they've been given for the last week. And they're accountable to the, the 
owner of the business for what's been happening with those leads because he knows how much it costs him for each lead that comes into the business. And if he's going to spend that money to bring those leads in, he wants to know what's happening with them. The problem that he's experiencing is that some of the the team members are very good about keeping their Monday morning or Tuesday morning meetings with the owner of the business. And some of them uh, are constantly rescheduling them or when they're keeping the meetings, they're not coming in prepared. They don't they have they don't have notes on what's happened with each lead or they they haven't called leads back or they haven't followed through on delivering proposals, and when we t- when we talk to that business owner about there's not a culture of accountability right now and that's what we're working on so he's having some tough conversations and kind of laying down the law with those, those folks who aren't coming in prepared to create a culture of accountability. And we're very familiar. Most managers are very familiar with accountability in that context. But the same culture of accountability that affects the the salesperson who comes in or doesn't come in prepared for the meeting is the same culture of accountability that drives managers to go out and get the data before they make these kinds of decisions. Because ultimately... So, so what's driving, what's the difference between the two situations? Well, in the first, it's easy for us to wrap our head around accountability because we're talking about accountability to the owner of the business. And when someone says, I'm going to hold you accountable, it means that you're expected to do something for that person or you're expected to do something and bring the results back to that person. So when you're accountable to a person, it's fairly easy for us to get our head around that. And that's why the this idea of culture of accountability is very familiar when it comes to the management of the business. What I'm talking about is the same culture of accountability when it comes to the decision-making process in a business. And decision-making, really, if you want to kind of redact it down to it, it, it boil it down, reduce it down to its most basic uh, elements, strategic planning is decision-making. It's decision-making writ large in terms of large decisions that have long-lasting results and impact on the business. So if we're going to bring a culture of accountability to decision-making, it means that we are accountable not just to managers in the business, not just to owners in the business, but we're accountable to making the best decision that we can. And the data demands that we analyze it and look at it before we make those decisions so that decisions are informed. It's very easy when you're not accountable to anybody just to spew out anecdotes and feelings and presuppositions about what you believe can and can't be done in the business or what you believe has or hasn't happened in the past. And there's no accountability to anything. There's no fact-checking. There's no standard by which your decision can be criticized as good or bad because you haven't made it accountable to anything. So don't be surprised when you walk into a business that's had a strategic planning process in place for a couple of years where not only are the people being held accountable, but those who are making decisions in the process are also bringing a lot of data to the table because they're accountable to that data. They're accountable to a standard, an objective standard about whether a decision is based on good or bad information. So... When we first get involved with these businesses, you know, they're typically making decisions on a day-to-day basis, kind of by the seat of their pants, and it it tends to be crisis-oriented. 
And the big decisions in the business are really definitely crisis oriented and they have to do with, uh, they could have to do with major market shifts. So let's say a competitor moves in, um, to the same territory and they're all of a sudden they're looking at a 30 or 40 or 50 or even 60% reduction in their business. And they're going, Oh, we, we've got to pivot. We've got to change our business model. We've got to change our marketing plan, or we've got to put a marketing plan in place. Uh, or we've got to change our overhead structure. Um, so it could be it could be market driven like that. It could be there could be major changes in the industry. Uh, maybe the the rules, the governing body, regulatory body in the industry has changed the landscape or is getting ready to change the landscape, and everybody's running around trying to figure out how they're going to deal with it. It could be uh, it could be it's not happening as much now, but from 2008 to 2012, the broad economy was driving a lot of the crisis decision making. Uh, businesses that were seeing uh, large declines in their industry just because they were in, say, uh, development or uh, or uh, luxury goods or discretionary income purchases, that kind of stuff. During the recession, that business dried up, and all of a sudden, they're starting to to make big decisions. But the big decisions again are being driven in crisis. And there are a couple of things about crisis that are, that don't lend themselves to making good decisions. And the first is the time frame. So a lot of the time when you're making decisions in crisis, you don't have the time to go out and get the data. And you make decisions anecdotally because of the time crunch. The same way you make decisions on the sales floor right in front of the customer in a time crunch. And a lot of times you, you don't have the, the time or the ability to go get the information before you make the decision. And when you're making decisions that are going to affect the entire business for years and years to come, and you're doing it in a crisis situation where you don't have the time to go get the data, you know, bad things are going to happen. That's just, that's the way it goes. You might get lucky every once in a while. Sometimes the decision has already been made for you, and and that's not really what I'm talking about. So in the recessionary environment that we had several years ago, companies that had 50% reductions in sales, the decision was already made for them. The decision was you have to fire some people. And the, the only difference was rather than, rather than recognize that that decision was being made, they totally missed. They were in denial. They didn't, they didn't recognize that that decision was being made. And by the time they realized that that decision had already been made, they were definitely in crisis mode. And so they started cutting people and they, you know, in some cases cut the wrong people or cut the, cut the right people in the wrong ways and just made the situation worse. So when you're faced with crisis and you don't have the opportunity to go get the data, some bad things are going to happen. Um, when you can recognize that you're being forced into a situation and the decision's already been made for you, that's not what we're talking about here. You just have to, if that decision's already been made for you, you just need to execute on it as effectively as possible. There are probably some decisions you can make underneath that, like we said about how to let people go or when to let people go in that particular situation. But the fact that you have to let people go, that's already, that's already been decided. If you deny that, then you're just delaying the inevitable and you're putting yourself in a worse and worse position. So, Crisis is is the venue that typically creates the opportunity or the venue inside most businesses for decision-making. And what we're really after is a better place 
a better venue for those decisions to be made. And that's why I'm very much the advocate for a strategic planning process. Now, businesses that don't necessarily do strategic planning, there are, there are some good businesses that say, uh, you know, we don't do plan. We don't, we don't want to plan. We just want to hire the best people and free them up to do the best work. And we're going to empower them and give them all the tools and support them in every way possible. And, and we just know, and we actually know from experience and we're a top performer in our industry that this is the best way to go. Okay. Uh, I'm not denying that there are those businesses out there, but I think they're one in 10,000. And I do think that they have deliberately done something strategically uh, to, that affect how they run that business on a day-to-day basis and how they make decisions on a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, quarter-by-quarter, and annual basis that I would call strategic planning, and they would just call them part of their culture. But their culture is very deliberate. So while I might, I, while I might say we're very deliberate about the strategic planning process, and that includes culture, they would say we're very deliberate about our culture Oh, and and as a side note, hush, hush, there's some strategic planning in there as well. We just don't, we don't call it that. It's all culture to us because it's all about the people. So, and I I would say that those, that one in 10,000 tends to be um, some type of professional services, knowledge worker, um, where they're, they're selling intellectual capital more than they're selling anything else. They're selling access to intellectual capital. They're not typically selling widgets. They're not typically selling um, a, a commodity service or scaled-out service. They're sell, selling unique intellectual capital. Um, and, you know, sometimes it could be software development. Sometimes it could be professional services. But the people that they are building that culture, that exclusive culture that I'm saying includes some strategic planning disciplines. Those those folks are um, typically high proportionate of them are A players, and they're capable of getting the strategic planning stuff not only at the the organizational level but all the way down to what it means for their desk. And they can call it culture, but there's definitely a discipline to it if you look and and dig underneath the rhetoric. So. I'm an advocate of this thing called strategic planning because I think for every one in 10,000 businesses that can pull it off and call it culture, I think there's a hundred of them that can do it if they just learn the discipline of strategic planning. And it gives you this venue for making bigger strategic decisions. And it does the way that it does, it allows you to go out and get the data and bring it back before you make the decision. The plan also, well, the other thing a strategic plan does is it, it considers, so it considers culture because it considers values first. You can't build a strategic plan if you don't know what the values of the organization are. And those typically come directly from the ownership. So what does the owner want the company to embody to the rest of the world? That Those are the values that the company um tries to eat, sleep, and breathe every day, no matter what it does, whether it's selling air conditioners or whether it's doing tax returns or whether it's an engineering firm or whether it writes software, whether it's a doctor's office, it doesn't matter. The values of the company are what it tries to live to the outside world in the course of doing whatever it does on a day-to-day basis. And 
once that once you understand the values, you also have to get some articulation of the vision. You know, where's this company going? What's it going to try to uh, accomplish in the world? Not just how is it going to accomplish, but what is it going to try to accomplish it? And then how is it going to try to accomplish that specific thing? And what's the time frame for doing that? And what are the specific strategies that we're going to pursue to make that happen? So that's all part of the strategic plan. And when you have that stuff in place, it allows you the, – the process of putting that stuff in place is about making big decisions. But once those big decisions are made, it allows you to make untold innumerable small decisions every day that are either consistent with or, or not consistent with that broader plan. So every day in every business, whether it has a strategic plan or not, people are making decisions. All we're saying is if you have the plan in place, it then gives them some standard by which they can make those small decisions on a minute by minute, hour by hour basis. So if if your uh, if one of your chief values is care for the customer, and one of the chief strategies that you're going to use to build this business going forward is to never lose a customer. Retention is the strategy. We're going to retain every single customer that walks through the door. When you have a a, a person on the floor in your customer service department who's only answering half the call volume as everybody else, but is spending twice as much time on the phone with those customers, you think twice about whether you bring this up as a deficiency or whether you bring it up as something that should be modeled by the other customer service reps. So before you're making a decision based on you're, you're probably making the decision that this person needs to increase their call volume, which means getting off the phone faster so that they can take the next call. Because you're looking at everybody else and going, well, that's the way everybody else is doing it, and that's the standard. And so that's what I'm going to use to make my decision to call this person in and say, you need to get off the phone faster so you can answer more calls. But because I have this framework of a strategic plan that says – care for our customers is our chief value and our chief strategy toward achieving our vision of being, you know, the best widget maker in the world or the best widget seller in the world, whatever your vision is, the strategy we're going to pursue to get there is keep, hold on to every single customer. When one of those customers calls in, we want to spend as much time with them as they feel necessary to address whatever issue or problem they're having. And it could be that this one sales rep, sales or service rep is doing that and the others are not. But, so I need to go, again, I need to go get, I might need to go get some data. I might need to listen to some of the calls, sample the calls from both groups to see which one is actually meeting the customer's needs, which one is actually spending the amount of time that's necessary with the customer and that, that the customer feels is necessary. But I'm going to make the decision based on the standard of customer care value and the retention strategy. And that's a small decision. And every day, a manager in that department is faced with decisions about managing those employees. And with the standard of a strategic plan, they've got a basis for making those small decisions. And that that happens 100 times a day in a 20-person business that has a strategic plan. They've all got opportunities to make decisions consistent with or inconsistent with the strategic plan. What happens 
in a lot of companies is that decisions are made by default, meaning the decisions are made by somebody else. I'll let the customer make the decision about whether we give them a refund or not by how much they rant uh, or rave about their uh, out-of-warranty period claim for a refund. Um, I'll let the vendor decide whether they get a 2% discount by whether or not they ask for it or whether or not they pitch a fit when they don't get it. I'll let uh, my boss decide uh, how late I should stay for work um, by leaving when I want to and just waiting to see if he says anything the next day. And I'll use that as my gauge about whether he's okay with me leaving at 4 or 4.30. So in a lot of businesses, in the absence of any framework for making decisions, we just let somebody else make the decision. And this happens on a small basis and it happens on a large basis. So when you've got, when you have no framework in place and the manager of the customer service reps is bringing somebody in who's really delighting customers and dressing them down because they're spending too much time on the phone, don't be surprised if you walk into uh, the manager's meeting and you, you, you witness this crisis where an industry change that you should have seen coming for the last five years is suddenly upon us and we don't know how to deal with it and we're looking at horrific financial consequences and the possibility of having to change the entire way we do business or the lines of business that we do or the, the entity structures that we have because we let somebody else decide. By not making a decision, we let somebody else decide what we are going to do with our business. And unfortunately... I guess, unfortunately for the business world, fortunately for my business, that's the norm. Most people don't make decisions. They, and, and it's not that they just hate to make decisions. It's the fact that they are typically true operators and they do a very poor job of, of, of differentiating between their work in the business and their work on the business. And they've got so many decisions to make as an operator in their day-to-day world. They don't they don't have the energy, they don't have the time, they don't have the resources to take themselves up to 10 or 20 or 30,000 feet and look at the business from a broader perspective and say, what decisions need to be made uh, that only I can make or that only this group can make? And if we make them now, we're going to be in a much better position than if we just let somebody else make those decisions for us and procrastinate for three or four years. So it it runs consistently through the organization. If the people at the bottom are letting others make the decisions, whether it's customers or vendors or managers or whomever, and they're not being proactive and making decisions according to a plan, then the managers are doing the same thing. The ownership's doing the same thing. When you walk into an organization that has a plan, you'll see a lot more, I don't want to say proactivity, but you'll see a lot more intention about the decisions big and small that are made in the business. What else? Um, You know, I could give you a couple of of cases um, that, so there's there's usually a few things going on. There there are times when people are not comfortable um, with change, and that can be perceived as this lack of a decision-making 
ability or a lack of a decision-making uh, intention inside of a company. And that's not what it is. They, they don't want to make decisions, but it's not because they want somebody else to make them for them. It's just because they're terrified of change. And that's, that's something that we see often. One of the things that I tell clients, um, I tell every new prospect this before we get started. At some point in the due diligence process, I'm sitting down with the owner of the business. Sometimes we'll talk about it during, when we're giving the proposal. But I say, you know, the process that we're about to embark on usually is something the company's never done before. They've never operated according to a plan. They've never had a discipline that the entire company has been held accountable to, including the owners, about what they're going to be expected to do and how often they're going to be expected to do it and what they're going to be measured against and what that's going to mean in terms of everything from compensation to business expansion um, to acquisitions and other things that the owner may have just done at their prerogative before. Now there is no more owner prerogative. The prerogative is the plan and everybody's going to be held accountable to the plan. And I say, you know, if this is new to you and you've never run the company in this way before, then if there are five people sitting around the leadership team table, you're going to lose one of those. If there's four, you're probably going to lose one of those. If there's three, you may not lose one because that's a little bit more of a core group. You may still lose one. But I guarantee you in a group of five, we're going to lose one of those folks. A year from now, one of the people around that table will not be here because it's a different process. And the person who leaves is that person that we're talking about right now, that it's not the fact that they don't like to make decisions. It's the fact that they just don't like to, they don't like change. And since they don't like change, every decision they make will be not to change, which means no decision of any consequence is going to challenge the status quo. And that's a tough situation to be in because, um, you know, one of us has to go. <laughs> I mean, I've, th- my, my express purpose, and I'm speaking personally now as the consultant who's brought in to help these companies grow, the express purpose for which I've been brought in is to change the status quo. And if there's somebody on the leadership team who does not want does not want to change the status quo, we're going to be at odds with each other, and one of us has to go. Either I have to leave or they have to leave. We can't both coexist in the same space at the same time uh, and get stuff done. Um, I would say we, we can't get stuff done at the pace that the client's going to be satisfied with. We can still make progress, but it's going to be me dragging them, kicking and screaming, and that's not going to satisfy the client because our pace is going to be too slow to justify the investment that they're putting into me. The return on investment isn't going to be high enough because of the pace slowdown. So recognize when the the person that you're dealing with, and it seems like they just have a hard time making decisions or, or making, yeah, just making decisions. It, it seems like that's their problem. Ask yourself, is the real problem the fact that they're just, every decision they make is going to be to keep the status quo? And sometimes that manifests as not wanting to make decisions at all. Because if you don't make decisions, they feel like you can't keep the status quo, but that's not always the case. So other other situations um, are where people have made bad decisions in the past, 
and they've really gotten burned by them. So this goes back to that anecdotal stuff that we remember. It kind of burns its way into our memory, and we have a hard time letting go of it. And if if that bad experience was around making a big decision, then there will there don't be surprised if there's a reluctance to make big decisions in the future because of that. And that's not scary to me when we run up against that kind of situation where somebody's just had a bad experience and they're afraid of making another big decision we can usually go back and and this almost sounds like you know have them lay down on the couch and go into therapy but we can usually go back and break down that previous decision where they really got burned and almost always almost always the decision was made in the vacuum of good data and good process. So there was some big kind of fork in the road facing the company. And, and uh, so I'll give you, let me think of a good example here because I'm sure we've got several of them in our experience. So, so uh, this one involved uh, acquisition. So this company um, built pools for um, developers. They're in the new construction industry. And they came to us pretty much when it was too late to really do anything. We did a little bit of work for them to to help them mitigate the damage that had already been done. But this company decided – so right away, uh, we had some pretty big decisions that we had to make. And we had a really, really hard time getting the two owners in the company to commit to any decision of any consequence. They were more than willing to change little stuff like window dressing. You know, there were there were like some periphery areas of the business that weren't doing that well, and we our recommendation was that we shed those. But you know, they, they were a distraction. They were of almost no consequence to the bottom line. They they may have brought in, you know, three or four percent uh, gross profit margin, and so they they weren't adding anything to the bottom line. The sales were low anyway, and so we said we well, need to shut those down. They go, okay, well th- that's fine, we'll do that. Uh, but then we said looking at what you have in the pipeline and looking at realistically where the development community's at and the new home forecast for this area, you need to take two of your three project managers and, and move them into other parts of the business. We can still keep them on board, but they're going to have to take a pay cut. And we're going to have to change their responsibilities uh, because we're not going to need project managers. We're going to need field supervisors. And they, they just could not, they, they, they agreed with the rationale, but they couldn't get their head around the decision. And and it, the more we looked at it, the more we looked at it, it, it the, the previous decision that they had made to, to let somebody go or to wasn't even let somebody go, it was to move somebody in the organization was a designer, the person who designed all the pools and, and worked directly with the customers and they're paying this person quite a bit of, of money. And then they got into more and more of the new home construction stuff. And when they got into the new home construction business, the builders didn't need, if they're building 100 homes, they didn't want 100 different pool models. They wanted like three different pool models. And so all of a sudden, the designer went from doing every single job that came in the door. He was very, very, very involved with the customer and got to be very creative, and, and he was a big selling point. This guy sold a lot of pools for us. And then we go to these de- this one developer, and the one developer is going to be building 
a hundred times as many as the last customer who walked into the showroom, but there's only, uh, you know, three times as much work, a hundred times as much production, but only three times as much required work from the designer. And so we said, well, you're going to have to cut this guy's pay because previously he was getting commission on every sale because he was real involved in the closing process. And now he's not even meeting with the developer. Now the upside for this guy is, yeah, he's going to take a cut and pay, but he's also not working 60 hours a week anymore. And there's no sales pressure on him. And there are other admin areas of the business that if we transition him into, we can get his pay back up to where it was. But it, it does, it is, it's going to mean that he needs to go out and sell. He's going to actually have to go out and be a salesperson as well as a designer. And they said, uh, okay, uh, we'll fire this guy. And they did it without a lot of data. They didn't think through. They, they kind of decided um, one week when they'd had kind of a tiff, and it had been like the third or fourth tiff of the month with this person, and they decided, all right, today's the day. We're going to let him know that we're going to cut his pay, and we're taking away his responsibilities. And if he wants to earn it back, he's got to close five sales a week. And if he has to knock on doors to do that, let him knock on doors. Rather than going in and looking at what his production had been and what it would need to be to justify keeping him on board and working with him to transition this over a period of time so he didn't feel the pain in the pocketbook right away, you know, they just kind of went in and and they 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 got up their courage and they both related this story to me where they were at the office late on a friday night and they got up their courage and they said we're going to do this we are going to we're going to take charge of this business and we're going to make this decision and this is a this is a major decision that was going to affect the company one of the first major decisions they've made of, as new owners of the company and so they let this they call this guy in on a saturday morning and they tell him you're taking a forty percent pay cut, and if you want to earn back what you what you're losing, you're going to have to go out and beat the bushes and find customers because that's what everybody else is going to have to do. And the guy kind of sat there, uh, deer in the headlights, and said, "Okay." And then he walked back in on Monday morning and said, um, "You guys didn't treat me right. I didn't appreciate what you did." A friend of mine has a general contractor's license. Uh, I'm going to go to work for him, and we're going to start our own pool company, and we're going to take every customer we can away from you, including the builders. And and he did, and he did, he hurt them pretty bad. He, he was very successful in taking a good chunk of the business away. And so that was their last experience with making a major personnel decision. And that's what was holding them up from making the same kind of decision or, or as big of a decision with these two of the three project uh, managers to put them back in the field as supervisors, change their roles and responsibilities, uh, lower their, their um, base pay amount, but provide some incentives based on company profitability where they could work themselves back up if production improved. And the similarities in their mind, the similarities between these two situations were way too close. It was like, well, we made a major personnel decision there. One of the biggest, one of the first real big personnel moves we made after we bought the business and it burned us. And now you're asking us to make another big personnel decision here and we feel like it's going to burn us again. 
And once we understood that that's where the reluctance to make a big decision was coming from, we were able to go back and start asking a lot of questions about what had happened with this designer. And and the more we found out about it, the more we found out, well, you guys, you should have made this change with the designer like six months before you actually pulled the trigger because the problems that that you were experiencing those had all started a long, long, long time before. Um, so you, you hadn't, you did not make the decision based on data. You just made the decision and this is what it really, really came down to. They made the decision because they knew if they kept the guy at the same pay rate and the, the, with the cash that was in the bank, payroll was going to be really tight the following week. And that's what forced their decision. So, once they understood, yeah, the, the previous time when we got burned, this bad experience, this burned into our memory, we did it all wrong. We didn't have good data. We put the decision off longer than we should have. When we did it, we, we did it in this kind of rash, um, you know, kind of pumped up adrenaline-soaked way of, of getting our courage up and calling the guy in and just, you know, just doing it. We're just going to take charge. And, and the, that's a lot different than what we're talking about this time. Now we're making this call about three or four months before it's going to create a financial crisis that we have to respond to. The th- the two guys that we're bringing in, the two of the three guys that we're bringing in, they don't really uh, have the ability to burn us in that way. I mean, there's plenty of other ways they could hurt us, but the way that we're handling this isn't really going to give them an incentive to hurt us as much as it's going to give them a tremendous incentive to help us. And we have a a much different environment now than we did then in terms of how they're going to make their decision to hurt us or help us. Now we have these three guys are a huge team and they have a lot of rapport with each other. And we're actually keeping that team together. We're just changing the focus and the the titles and some of the responsibilities and the compensation. And everybody's going to take a little bit of a compensation hit. So the whole environment's different this time. And once we understood the difference between the environments and the thinking behind the two situations, we were able to get them to a point where they were comfortable and that burned-in memory of a bad experience wasn't holding them back from their next big decision. Um, I gave the example earlier of the call center person, uh, and that's that's not too far from a real-life case where we had... Um, not necessarily a call center person, but somebody who was um, giving discounts. And at first glance, when you looked at the numbers, the discounts that they were giving seemed disproportionately large. And we said, well, we, we maybe we should call this person in and give them a talking to. Um, but before we did that, we said, well, we've got lots and lots of data because we're measuring everything now. So let's look at who's receiving the discounts. And we found out, um, and we didn't even have to look that far. We asked a few questions, and it turned out that the customer service reps who were um, getting trouble calls from customers, customers who are basically ready to cancel their service, they knew from experience that there was one particular salesperson who was really good at saving those relationships, and so they started sending all of those calls to him. And, and when we looked at his call logs for existing customer callbacks, 
uh, about 80% of his existing customer callbacks were for the, from these problem accounts that CSRs had flagged in the system. And so the more we learned about these 80% is that about half of those had already decided to cancel their service, but had agreed to go ahead and meet with the salesperson one last time. Um, sometimes on the pretense of doing an exit interview, sometimes on the pretense, well, I don't want to say pretense, but sometimes they would agree to see him because they had prepaid for service and they might be do a refund, but he needed to uh, take a look at the vehicle and determine whether or not, you know, there, it was a kind of a prorated service thing. And he's come out and say, well, of the, you know, $290 you've paid, uh, you're about halfway through the service life on this part. And so we can give you a, a refund of 145 bucks or something. So sometimes it was that. Sometimes it was, um, you know, we just want to send somebody out um, to wrap up the paperwork and, and drop off your warranty information and, um, and wish you well. And so they would send this one guy out. And ha- again, half of those, half the 80% of the calls he got were from problem accounts. Half of those had already decided to, um, to cancel their service. And half of them were, they weren't, they hadn't canceled yet, but they were very upset. So when we looked at the half that were willing to cancel their service and we said, hey, let's say that if on ever if we looked at what he was giving discounts, the customers he was giving discounts to, if you said the discounts went to just the ones who had already decided to cancel their service and the numbers were about the same. So it seemed reasonable to assume that uh, probably nine times out of ten, when he goes out to one of these that's already decided to cancel the service, he's offering a discount. And we looked at the discount that he was offering to keep that customer versus what it would cost to bring a new customer on board. He was saving about two years of profit margin just by giving the discount. And that was huge when you when you considered what it took to bring new customers on board. So all of a sudden, this guy went from being the goat to being the hero. And we actually, we said, well, what we would like to do is understand what his approach is when he goes out and gives those discounts, because we want everybody to be given those kind of discounts. And we want the CSRs to be able to dispatch somebody immediately uh, to one of those problem accounts. And maybe they won't even have to give the discount because this guy was so backed up that sometimes it was two, three, four, five days before he could even make it out there to see one of those customers. And there was there was some thinking that maybe if we could get somebody out there same day, he, we wouldn't even have to give the discount and we'd be able to retain the customer. So we actually made him the trainer for the other salespeople. There's about 15 salespeople in this organization. And we made him the trainer to go out and and talk to these guys about how they were dealing with these problem accounts and how to save them and when to offer a discount and when to, to not put it on the table. And that all came out of a couple things. One, I mentioned the retention strategy of we are not going to lose the customer. That's one of the reasons that uh, we were looking at the discount data in the first place because the first question was, do we need to expand discounts? Are they... Are they about where they need to be? Are they under where they should be? That kind of stuff. And we f- and when in the course of answering that question, we found that one person was responsible for giving out most of the discounts, and that caused us to dig further. And the other thing that that we uh, the other value there was a value inside the company that we trust our employees to make 
decisions that are in the best interest of the customer and the company. And, and so that trust meant that if, if we really say that, then we can't just make an arbitrary decision that says this number's too high, you've got to bring it lower. Because if we trust him to make the best decisions, we have to understand whether he may be making the best decisions. We might be wrong in saying that this number is too high. So the values in that case provided the framework for judging the data that we saw and the strategy of going out and pursuing retention is what caused us to pull the data in the first place. It's entirely possible that did we not have the framework, and when I say framework, I, you can use that. That's synonymous with, an, uh, with a company's strategic plan. So that if we didn't have the strategic plan that included the values and included the, stra- the specific strategy of retention, it's entirely possible that during a routine review of this guy's numbers, we would have seen that he's given out discounts at a rate five times all of his colleagues and gone, dude, you are taking way too much company, way too much money out of the out of the company's pocket. But we did have a framework that said we trust our employees, and retention is the strategy we're behind. And he knew that retention was the strategy we were behind. That's why he was making the decisions that we were entrusting him to make. So. Those are two examples. Um, there's probably dozens more, <laughs> um, and that's the fun part of the stuff that we work on and the stuff that we do with customers. Is you know, for every story I share with you guys, there's probably six or or seven more that are just like it. That are great illustrations of how this stuff works in the real world. When when we talk about making a decision. What I, what I would tell clients is just make any decision because once you have the framework in place, once you have the strategic plan in place, it really is like guardrails on either side of the highway. And even if you make a bad decision, the guardrails are going to keep you on the road. You're still going to get banged up. There's still going to be paint scraped off the fender, and it's still going to be disruptive to your trip. But you're not going to go careening off the side of the mountain. It's going to be the death of the business. So that's why I'm comfortable if we have a client that's got a strategic plan in place, I say just make any decision because any decision is better than no decision. Uh, if, if you're not making a decision, period, then somebody else is making it for you. And I would rather you make a bad decision for yourself than let somebody else make a good decision for you because that just doesn't happen very often. And if you have a strategic plan in place, you have the confidence of those guardrails on either side of you that even if I make a bad decision, I've got the plan in place because the plan has strategies and tactics and it's got measurements that are going to tell me when that decision is taking me away from the plan, when the results are really hurting us, and then we can make a course correction. But it's really, really frustrating when you find yourself in a company that's not making decisions because they don't have any guardrails and they're just terrified of driving off the mountain and they're trusting somebody else to keep them on the road and that's not the boat that we want to be in. So. That's why, again, I'm such a huge advocate of strategic planning. I think it's the best way to run your business. I think it's the best way to change the world through your business. And it's why I get to do what I do every day. So uh, I hope it's been helpful to you. If you want to find more information on this, you can go to axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 020, and you'll find the show notes. And uh, hopefully we'll get back on the weekly rotation and see you next week with another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brand. We'll see you soon.